the world leader in Internet Talk Radio. Internet Talk Radio. You're listening to America's Voice, voiceamerica.com. Welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch with your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Welcome to today's edition of Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Today we're uh, going to be talking to the author of a new book called What's Right With You? And the subtitle is Debunking Dysfunction and Changing Your Life. The author is Barry Duncan. He's a psychologist. And um, I, I'm very interested to chat with you about this, Dr. Duncan, because um, <laughs> because it's really a sub- subversive. <laughs> I, you know, I always love it when I start to read the book of the guests that I've invited, and I start realizing, oh, no. <laughs> I recently had that a few weeks ago with... Um, a very interesting man, author, and, and a very interesting book um, regarding um, uh, whether one can change one's sexuality, sexual preference. And I was kind of interested in have I thought he'd be a great guest. He was, actually, it turned out. But we did have to get over the little uh, hump when I, I received the book in the mail. I saw that Dr. Laura had written the, um, the introduction or the preface or something like that, and um, which I don't think was a great choice, but, um, and, you know, right away it kind of sets up for me these these um, flashing lights that say, be careful, you know. Now, fortunately, you don't have Dr. Laura giving any kind of introduction, but, um, but I must say that along with this very interesting and very timely theory that you have, um, looking at the resilience inside rather than just looking at ourselves as um, as poor, helpless, dysfunctional people, there is a bit of psychiatry and psychology <laughs> bashing that goes on. What do you have to say to that? Well, I, I think that it deserves some bashing, actually, both. <laughs> <laughs> not, not stepping down from that? <laughs> yes. Well, you know, the, it's uh, a bashing well-deserved because if you, if you look at the, the founding parent of the field, Sigmund Freud, he said in a letter to Jung, you know, over 100 years ago, he said, I have found little that is good about human beings. In my experience, most of them are trash. And the problem is that in, in many ways the mental health field and, you know, particularly psychiatry and psychology haven't really changed that view of people very much because the quintessential question has been what's wrong with you in the whole field of mental health. So I think that both psychiatry and psychology have done its fair share of convincing people that they're either broken, scarred, incomplete, or sick in some way or another. Well, okay. Um, let's talk about Freud, who I actually um, uh, put on a rather high pedestal. Uh, I'm not familiar with that particular quote, but I would like to know the context of that and what he he meant actually. But um, and I I studied right before she died with Anna Freud in England. Mm. Uh, this was 
during my psychiatry residency my last year, um, I purposely, you know, spent time months in, in England um, to study with her. So you're talking with a <laughs> true diet in the world. You're getting from your guys. <laughs> this is not getting better. You're talking to a true diet in the wool um, Freudian. But, <laughs> you know, the thing is, I mean, I agree with you to an extent that, um, that it is not therapeutic or helpful to people to just look at them in terms of their um, maladaptations and their uh, pathological diagnoses. But at the same time, if you don't make these diagnoses or don't formulate some kind of idea uh, as to what is wrong with them, then how are you supposed to help them and fix them? It's kind of like bringing a car in and saying, you know, wow, it's got a great engine, but, you know, what about the four tires that are um, flashed? Well, first let me say that, that I have nothing against uh, analytically oriented folks. In fact, some of my best friends are psychologically <laughs> informed. Of but I don't, you know, I don't hold that against them, certainly. And, and there's a lot to be said positive about that approach and thinking that way. In fact, the whole field would be... Um, I want without the whole idea of the therapeutic alliance um, has informed the way everybody practices, not just people that are um, trained analytically. So um, it's uh, some of the excesses of the approach that have gotten the most uh, publicity and, and, and bashing in the process. So, but your point is, is well taken. I mean, the idea that um, don't you have to pay some attention to kind of what's wrong to be able to even work with what's right? And, and that's certainly the notion that I, that I challenge in the book and that thinking that there's a lot more going to be gained from working with what's already right with people and starting to try to amplify and marshal those resources and aid abilities to address what's wrong, even if you look at things as a, from a what's wrong frame of mind, which, you know, I tend not to, but even if you do, um, you're very likely going to get much further in that endeavor if you figure out a way to enlist, engage, or harvest what's right to address those very aspects about that what's wrong because there's a lot of research information, especially 40 years of outcome research, that says that most change emanates from what the person brings to the process anyway and that whether or not therapy is successful, for example, tends to co-vary around what um, attributes and strengths that people bring to the process and how the therapist enlists those things. So. Um, even if you have a perspective about what may be wrong with someone, you're going to have to figure out what's right to be able to marshal that to make those changes. Now, before we um, continue, I do have to ask you, you're not by any chance um, involved in any way, aligned in any way with Scientology or Dianetics, are you? No, there's absolutely no connection between me and Dianetics or Scientology at okay. all. All right. <laughs> um, which are fellow therapist bashers, or especially, I guess, psychiatrist bashers. Right, right. Especially against medication. Okay. Yeah. Well, you start out the book and um, with a very interesting um, story um, and, and, and photos of your father, uh, to whom you dedicate the book, um, who taught you about heroism and resilience. And... Why don't you, if, if you can tell us that story, which I think um, 
is a great illustration for you, obviously, and your point, but also I would like to then sort of get you to see how, as a psychoanalytically oriented psychiatrist, I would see that and I would go about or would have gone about helping him. But why don't you go ahead and tell the story? Sure. Um, I, I drew certainly a lot of my inspiration in my career and in, in this particular work um, from my father who, um, when he grew up on Appalachian hillside and, you know, abject poverty and escaped that by um, joining the Army uh, before World War II and actually was at Pearl Harbor when it was bombed. But he was too young. He was only 15, so his mother informed the commander and he was quickly honorably discharged, but he turned right back around a year later and joined the Marines and then wound up being on Saipan during the Banzai charge. And then on, he was on Iwo Jima when the flag was raised and was forever captured as a symbol of our freedom. But he came back from that like, like many returning GIs and then went in search for the American dream, moved away from the poverty in Appalachia to northern factories to work, where he did finally gain enough seniority to buy a home, have a family, and, and kind of have his slice of the American pie. Um, but he worked that job many years and ultimately became a supervisor and a shift foreman and until he was very close to the early retirement that he dreamed of, and he started having conflict with a, um, a boss, a manager that he worked for, until ultimately the manager fired him. And this was quite a devastating experience, especially men of that generation tend to put most of their self-worth into what they do. Not that that's all that much different now, but especially then it was um, important. And about two weeks after that happened, he started having chest pains and had emergency uh, bypass surgery, um, which kind of threw him into, that was a one-two punch that threw him into, a, you know, what I would call a fairly major depression thereafter. And so... It was his response to that, his resilience in coming back to that, really, that made a big impression on me, you know, as a young person at the time and how... And his, how old were you when he got fired? I was about 20 um, uh -huh. at that time. And 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 so it was... I, I saw that kind of real one-two punch on him and how depressed he got. And um, But as soon as he was medically cleared, he went back, which was... Really, I didn't expect that. I didn't expect that he could do that, just given some of the conversations I had with how badly he felt about everything. And I asked him how he faced that day of going back, and he said that the more he thought about it, of whether or not he could stay discouraged by the firing or, or even um, disheartened by the uh, medical problems that he was having, that it just wasn't him to give up at that point in time, that when he thought about what he had been through, he had been, you know, from certainly a very harsh family, a very harsh stepfather, and, you know, the the worst kinds of poverty situations to the horrors of war to trying to make it when he got back and working several jobs to, to feed his family, that if he did all those things, that he surely would be able to, to face this day of going back, which is exactly what he did. And he not only went back, he thrived. They promoted him once again, and in three short years, he retired to Florida and fished every day, which was also a dream of his. But it kind of stuck with me that people have these innate abilities to come back from things and these resiliencies, that those can be tapped into what people have already accomplished in their lives, these so-called, what I call their heroic sides or their heroic stories can be marshaled in their service. But 
of course, then I went to graduate school, and, and that wasn't the message that was delivered to me. It was more like that mythology was like a, you know, werewolf waiting to strike the uh, um, individuals um, from the dark, and what we had to do was somehow find out what those werewolves were so we could protect people from them, which mm-hmm. took me a while, actually, to run across all the research that really ran counter to that idea that, you know, actually change comes from the person, it emanates from the relationship, it comes from inspiring hope um, more than any other things. Well, that's good timing. Um, <laughs> of course, that is an inspiring story, and we will talk a little bit more about that and the book, the book What's Right With You, with the author, Dr. Barry Duncan. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Stay tuned. Informative, educational, insightful. You're listening to VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Go behind the scenes of what you see, hear, and read on the news. Learn the ins and outs of public relations on Stars of PR with Cindy R. every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time. Cindy Rakowitz is a Clio Award winner and founder of Rack and Roll Public Relations who wants to share her experiences and knowledge with you. Learn how to handle a crisis, deal with celebrities, and become a terrific PR executive. Listen to Stars of PR with Cindy R. every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time here on America's Voice, voiceamerica.com. Information you need, when you need it, voiceamerica.com. Do you have questions concerning your personal portfolio? And would you like to know where the market's going before it gets there? Then you need to tune in to Elite Masters of Trading, hosted by the Traders Coach, Robin Day, every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Robin has great ideas on how to invest, save, and make money. So become an elite trader in the market every Wednesday at 10 a.m. with the Traders Coach, Robin Dane, and Elite Masters of Trading, right here on the Voice America Radio Network. Hello, this is Rory Garay, President of Greyhound Pets of America and host of Greyhounds Made Great Pets on Voice America. Join me every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific and 2 p.m. Eastern for an insightful and enjoyable talk about one of man's best friends, the Greyhound. Learn about the history of the Greyhound, discuss proper obedience and training techniques, and find out more about the Greyhound racing industry and what they are doing to help the adoption effort of the former race dog. If you own a Greyhound or just love dogs like I do, join me for Greyhounds Make Great Pets every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific right here on America's Voice, voiceamerica.com. Continuing to be the authority in Internet talk radio, you're listening to voiceamerica.com. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have questions or comments for Dr. Carol, call toll-free at 1-888-335-5204. Now let's get back to the show. Here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. 
Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. And my guest today is Dr. Barry Duncan, the author of What's Right With You? Debunking Dysfunction and Changing Your Life. We're having a friendly <laughs> debunking debate. <laughs> and um, Dr. Duncan was just telling us about uh, his father and his father's heroicism. Um, it's interesting, you know, how he was able to, at 15, um, obviously lying about his age to join the military, correct? Yes. Um, yeah. You sort of you sort of gloss over that in your book. <laughs> um, but anyhow, being very brave and dealing with all of that, and then and then being devastated when, after working for about thirty years in this job, making him his way to the top, um, someone comes in from the outside right before he's about to um, retire and uh, fires him because they don't because they have a difference of opinion. They disagree with each other. Now, what I found fascinating about that story is that you, you describe um, in the book about how one of the main reasons that your father left home at 15, besides poverty, um, you say an, an emerging violent, let's see, he fled the hopeless poverty of an Appalachian hillside and an emerging violent confrontation with his stepfather by joining the Army at the ripe age of 15. Now, surely um, you would see, here, let me talk, read what you said about the supervisor, the new supervisor, um, I mean the new boss, let's say. A new manager took over his department. They didn't get along at all. Their conflicts escalated, and unfortunately, Dad was not political or strategic in his interactions with the new manager, probably stealing Dad's state, plant manager who thought that dad walked on water because of his high production was transferred. The new department manager fired my dad. Now, <laughs> Freudian as it may be, um, <laughs> surely one can see the, the transference that your father had towards this uh, new boss, and um, which must have uh, ignited memories of disagreements um, that he had, conflicts that he had, stronger than disagreements, conflicts that he had with his stepfather. And had he been in therapy with me at the time, um, needless to say, that would be what I would be pointing out to him, that how it is that this new um, boss, who may well have been an irascible man, um, was pushing buttons in your father that kindled memories of his stepfather, who was presumably an irascible man. Hmm. I, I must admit that that's not a, a way that I've ever thought of the situation. But you know, again, I'm not. I don't tend to think of things, hmm. you know, in those ways. But yes, now that's really interesting. <laughs> I would have thought that you would have at least, you know, thought about that, even though maybe disagreed with or or. Huh, that's interesting. Okay, well, now that I've given you some insight into all of that, um, that's what, what I think, you know, the value is. Now, of course, nobody, I guess, um, on the other side of this, since he wasn't presumably in therapy at the time with anybody, I guess he, he dug down into himself on his own and found these strengths that were there from the time that he was a little boy and left at 15 to join the Army. Exactly, 
Exactly. You know, I, I think that when he was able to to think about you know, not only his present circumstance, but everything he had already you know gone through at that point in time, that there were a lot of resources for him to draw upon, and you know, and you know, and, and since you mentioned that about the you know the possible transference or the possible relationship between his new boss and his his stepfather, I mean, you know, that that would seem to be a a reasonable hypothesis to present to someone in that. But the two figures are, are fairly different in many respects. But but still, it might have been an interesting thing in terms of how he helped, how he handled the conflict versus you know how he handled it before, because he actually you know, I think fled that relationship with his stepfather right. to prevent getting into a physical altercation right. with him because they were very, very close because actually his stepfather was, you know, bordered on abusiveness. Um, and so he was, but he was 15 and considered himself to be, you know, a man of 15, so he was ready to, you know, rock and roll with him. Whereas, you know, with his uh, with his manager in that situation, you know, I think that he did fight back in, in some not... Um, you know, just not strategic ways that he didn't really, you know, cover himself very well and in, in mm-hmm. being voicing his, uh, you know, his disagreement with him. So, you know, I, I think there, well, there yeah, could be some to, parallels drawn there. And to follow what you're saying, you know, certainly unconsciously, although in this second case he didn't um, he didn't quit, but he certainly sort of arranged it, perhaps unconsciously, that he would get fired, which is the same thing as what happened when he was 15. I mean, he left the he dealt with it by leaving. Mm-hmm. And in this case, he dealt with it by being asked to leave. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you see how fascinating all of these things are? <laughs> now, yes, definitely. Although that that would be an explanation, I I don't think that he would he would uh, he would buy. But, well, maybe you know. not. You know, <laughs> maybe not. But that's kind of part of. Um, I mean, that's that's called resistance, and that's part of what I find so fascinating about therapy. Mm-hmm. But let's. Why don't we we can go on to sort of the yeah uh, <laughs> the, uh, the what the meat of your book and sure. explain um, why don't you start by explaining how you suggest I mean that is kind of a uh, one of the key factors the self awareness whether it's to have the insight into your childhood and how that's affecting you now or to have the insight into what are your strengths. And and how can you call them up in these difficult uh, situations that you face? What is the first step? Well, the first step is to um, dump these, what I call these killer Ds, these disorders, diseases, deficits, dysfunctions, disabilities, all these ways of, of thinking in, in, uh, about problems and living that are have been defined as illnesses by um, either mental health industry largely. So first is to dump that way of thinking about yourself and tend to more think of uh, yourself as having the resources and strengths to be able to handle the situation. So that's certainly the first thing. The second is to discover the hero within, and there are a variety of ways that a person can go about doing this. And one is to just recognize that human beings are not snapshots. We're more like moving pictures. So there never can only be one story that can be told about who we are or what our characteristics or descriptions of us would be and that we tend to get caught in these kind of killer D ways or these dysfunctional ways of thinking of ourselves and describing ourselves. So first idea of that is to think that there are multiple competing stories that can be told about who we are. You know, it's like the Alanis Morissette song. She says, I'm brave, but I'm experienced. Um, 
I'm green. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm green, but I'm experienced. You know, I'm brave, but I'm I'm chicken scratch. And she's commenting on that there are a lot of different ways to describe who we are, and they happen to be all true. Um, but what I'm suggesting is that these other ways of describing who we are or how we can empower ourselves to find our strengths. For example, um, I was seeing a woman who had been multiply abused when she was a child in, in the most horrific of ways. Uh, you know, when she was, the time she was 8 to 12 years old, her father would take her to bars on the weekends and ultimately sell her to one of the other uh, people in the bar, and that's kind of how she she grew up. She was telling me this this story, particular story of when um, on a, Saturday, a typical Saturday night, and they went to the, or one of the regular bars. Her her father got drunk, and so did all the guys around him. And ultimately, he sold her when she was ten to this other man. And he took her out in the um, in the snow, and there was a couple of feet of snow on the ground. And he throws her down in the snow, and he tears her dress. And she says to him, "You're not going to do me here in the snow." And then he proceeded to, you know, beat the crap out of her. But she still said, "You're not going to do me here in the snow." And she stood her ground until he ultimately dragged her to his car, and they did it there, or he did it there. And and so my comment back to her was, what does that say about you? Um, what kind of a person at 10 years old could set a limit like that, knowing that he could overpower you and kill you if he wanted to? What, is that, what does that mean about you as a person? How can that description of you be the one that we work with rather than the one of the abused victim that you also were? And so those kind of stories actually began to predominate our discussions, and there were many other stories like that about her. So the, the first thing that I try to show people how to do in the book is how to tell these different competing stories about their more heroic aspects of who they are so that they can at least uh, begin to take inventory that there are many, many ways to describe them. One of my favorite ways of getting out that, that is I ask people to consider who in their life would not be surprised to see them overcome the challenge that they're facing at this moment. Hmm. And then I would say, if they were here with you today or they were in the same room with you, what quintessentially you story would they tell to support their faith in you? Hmm. And um, oftentimes when people have lost faith in themselves, other people still treasure them for what they have of value. And I try to elicit those stories, which, again, are competing stories about people's heroism and those sides of them that can be enlisted to face the problems that they're facing. Well, you know, I think that that's really, um, that's really valuable. Um, I see it as, I mean, and it's certainly not really how I practice. <laughs> Probably my patients would appreciate it more if I did add some of that. But um, I see it more as something that would, in the beginning of treatment, um, make patients feel more comfortable so that they can reveal and dig deeper into their dark side, um, their pathology, if you will, their disease, their dysfunction, and so that you could then work on that. But we're going to have to take a break now before we work on anything. My guest today is Dr. Barry Duncan. He's the author of What's Right With You. Obviously, um, obviously uh, we have some, some differences of approach, but that's what makes it interesting. So stay tuned. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Bringing the world together. You're listening to America's Voice, voiceamerica.com. 
Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Are you feeling stuck in some part of your life? You might have some press busting to do. Trust is anything that you think, feel, or believe that prevents you from living life full out. Step into the crust-free zone with me, Dr. Pat Vasily, and get ready to do some serious crust-busting. Join us on Thursday mornings on voiceamerica.com at 8 a.m. Pacific Time for crust-busting your way to an awesome life. Do you know that over 70% of Americans with severe disabilities are unemployed? Are you one of the 2.5 million Americans with epilepsy? If you are or know someone struggling with these issues, tune in to Disability Matters with Joyce Bender. On the show, Joyce will discuss these issues as well as others. She will have a nationally known guest that will offer helpful insight on disability matters and let you, the listener, call in with your questions and concerns. So if you struggle with a disability or know someone who does, listen to Disability Matters with Joyce Bender. Heard every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time here on VoiceAmerica.com. Cutting edge. Challenging. Stimulating. You're listening to VoiceAmerica.com. When tax time comes, are you the person that goes to your accountant with a shoebox literally full of receipts? Stop wasting your accountant's time as well as your own by organizing your finances with the help of Joe Dunphy and Poor Richard Shoebox. Heard live every Monday at 7 a.m. Pacific Standard Time, Poor Richard Shoebox will let you know what you can do to organize for tax time as well as how to get the most out of your retirement. So get all of your receipts together and tune in to Poor Richard Shoebox with Joe Dunphy every Monday at 7 a.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on the Voice America Radio Network. Business, sports, religion, legal, pets, entertainment. You're listening to VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have questions or comments for Dr. Carol, call toll-free at 1-888-335-5204. Now let's get back to the show. Here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. We're talking about what's right with you as opposed to what's wrong with you, which is what uh, doctors, psychiatrists, psychologists um, do often, most often think about when a patient comes into the office. Uh, Debunking dysfunction and changing your life, Dr. Barry Duncan. So, Dr. Duncan, before the break, you were telling this example, giving us an example of a patient that you had treated, um, the woman telling the horrific story of her father selling her for sexual favors and her telling this, man at 10 years old that she wouldn't have sex with him in the snow and making him um, do it in the car, although it would have been nice if she could have just run away altogether and not done it anywhere, but I guess I guess she was afraid of what would have become of her, you know, how her father would have treated her at that point. Exactly, exactly. Um, she, had, she had many um, 
situations to manage within that. I mean, she had to manage her father as well, who was also, um, you know, sexually and physically abusive to her. Yeah, I figured that. Um, Okay, now in that example, and I could see that as being really uh, a very ego-building, strengthening exercise or or therapy session to um, ask, to, to get her to focus on her strengths and how strong she was at 10 to even be able to do that. But, um, and I could see that as sort of a way of making her feel more comfortable and then uh, feeling more able to sort of unburden herself and get even deeper into the story and, as I would look at it, as to what's wrong with her. Because... What did you do after that? I mean, did you ever, um, did you examine uh, issues about, well, I'm sure she must have issues with men as a, as a young woman or a woman. How, how old was she when she, you were seeing her? About 35, still pretty okay. young, yeah. Okay, so she, she must have been, I mean, was she part of her issues? I don't know if that's why she came into therapy, but must have been her relationships with men, her anger towards men. Absolutely, that was a that was a part of the package. So, I mean, so how did you deal with that? By by because in the way that I look at it, um, it seems like it's kind of glossing over the dirty, gritty stuff <laughs> and to build up the positive, um, furry, fuzzy stuff. <laughs> um, you can tell what kind of therapy I do. <laughs> yes, I can. <laughs> You're one of those. What's wrong with you, folks? That's for sure. <laughs> Um, well, actually, actually, it's, it's mine is kind of a hybrid because at the same time that I'm looking for what's wrong with you, um, I sort of uh, try to cure through humor and sarcasm and getting people to laugh at themselves and in that way build themselves up by sort of um, making the bad, the dirty and gritty, not so bad, I mean more acceptable, not so, uh-huh. something that they should be that ashamed of. But anyway, how did you help this woman deal with her anger towards men by building up, by telling her, you know, or letting, helping her see how strong she was? Mm-hmm. Well, that's a great question because, you know, it, it's not kind of a, a one-story event. I mean, it became a process of her saying all of these kinds of stories about her, you know, starting when she was 10 years old and, you know, what were other examples of when this particular side came out, this person who yeah. could draw limits, this person who knew what she wanted, the person who wanted to establish herself as different from her environment, and what coping skills did she bring to that. And, and then we carried that forward. And then when you have an empowered person sitting in front of you who now thinks that there are many different stories that a person can tell about her, and in fact, perhaps the now the dominant story is this reconstituted identity of a person who, yes, was a victim, but a person who stood against that victimhood as well and moved forward. And so how could a person who now thinks of herself in a different way now address relationships in a different way? And what would be the first way that she would go about addressing her anger toward men now that she has this different way of thinking of herself? So my approach would be not really um, having her um, work on this rage, but rather how she herself would now address it differently now that she's this multi-storied individual and not just the victim that she thought she was when she walked in the door. So, you know, I continue to solicit people's own ideas because, and then as they generate ideas, then, 
you know, sometimes I add to them, sometimes they want more ideas from me, and we try to coalesce that into a plan of example what she needs to do in her current relationships to kind of bring to bear what we've been talking about. So, you know, the kind of the basic, I think, difference maybe in the way we think about things, and, and again, let me reiterate that I see nothing invalid or wrong with the way that you're approaching because people need all kinds of different approaches to problems, and, you know, I'm sure you're, you're as helpful with your clients as I am with mine. There are many different ways to get there, but the, the point that I, was, that I was making was there that if, we find something that's of value to the individual that they can believe in, and I get to that point with a person and they are ready to implement that, then it's very likely to be successful, just like when you go through your process with people, when you um, try to find out what's wrong and then work with them to address that, you get them on board to believing that that can be useful to them and of value, and it likely will be at that point in time. So, you know, I try to rather than... Um, I, when I tap into a client's world, I'm looking for what they already have to address the problems that they have. But what about giving them new, I mean, new insights, not just about how strong they are, but, I mean, yes, to follow this, going along with this case, um, if this woman, if you're able to have her bring up more and more stories regarding how um, strong she is, courageous she is, other attributes that she has, then... Um, one could see where maybe some of her anger could dissipate because of her feeling less frightened mm -hmm. um, of men because of recognizing that she's stronger than she thought. And so she would have sort of a toning down of the, of the rage. But what I don't understand is how it, it seems like that's kind of a superficial way of dealing with it because if she doesn't understand that unconsciously when she meets the man, she's seeing them, each each man, as someone who's going to exploit her like her father did. If you don't bring up these connections, you know, with the different examples of men in her past and her present, how, and you just sort of get her to feel um, more powerful, then it seems like it would be sort of a superficial adaptation or a superficial lessening of the anger rather than really getting at the root of it. <laughs> we think do you understand what I'm saying? Yes, I certainly do. I mean, that, that's um, certainly one of the differences between, you know, a more present-oriented, action-oriented, um, narrative-oriented approach as opposed to, you know, an insight-oriented, um, depth-oriented approach that you, that you tend to advocate. You know, in, in my own work, um, you know, and I, I'm, I'm certainly on the other side of that, that camp where you are, the thing that's influenced me most, of, most about this is that model, method, and technique, for example, insight-oriented versus present-oriented, accounts for a small amount about how people change. So some people are going to, you know, learn a lot from an insight-oriented approach. Other people aren't. So what I want to do is let that emerge from the work itself in terms of the person teaching me how they can be helped. And if they teach me that insight into their problem is what's going to be useful to them, then, you know, I'll kind of really go into it and, and be as poetic as I can about my insight that I offer them. But unless they're kind of giving me the idea that that's the way they can be helped, I'm not going to go down that path with them. Um, I'd but a lot of people don't really know them. how they can be helped. I mean, you can't really mm -hmm. wait for the patient to, I mean, you know, most of the time, because because actually there's a lot of resistance to insights 
um, the more profound an insight is, the more resistance there is because the more it calls up these painful memories and feelings. So, where you can see resistance as kind of a co-constructed idea where the client just doesn't agree with the therapist's insight about it. Well, yes, when, (laughs) you know, certainly there are therapists who, uh, you know, who are wrong or whatever, give wrong interpretations, but, um, but, I I mean, yes, it is, it's certainly, how, how long do you usually treat people for? Well, it tends to be brief by its nature. Um, and like, like how many sessions? Kind of like what the national average is, between five and six. <laughs> no wonder. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess this is good for you. must be a, a favorite of managed care companies. <laughs> well, I mean, I don't know if I'm a favorite of managed care. I don't belong to any managed care list. <laughs> well, maybe some people will start calling you that <laughs> <laughs> well, but, you know, most most change that happens happens relatively early, regardless of the orientation of the of the therapist. Even if they're long term, you know, most change happens or starts to happen between six and eight sessions. So, um, if you even look at Ken Howard's research back in the '80s, where um, the predominant orientation of therapists back in those days was psychoanalytic or at least psychodynamic. Even in that research, people started changing early on in the process. So, well, yeah, even you know the the act of going of the first session, going to ask for help and and feeling comfortable with the therapist and expecting to get help, it can be you know um, helpful and create begin to create change in itself. But exactly, the problem exactly. with all this research, I, I am not a a you know I, I don't really put much credence to research in regard to comparing therapeutic modalities mm-hmm. because so much has to do with the actual therapists themselves. You can have, you know, ten different therapists um, practicing ten different things, and so much has to do with the um, intuitiveness of the therapist and the caring and compassion of the therapist. and I mean, so many personal qualities of the therapist. But it's just whether they're doing, you know, behavioral or, I mean, I, I just think it's very hard to compare in these math studies that they do when they use um, different therapists. You know, it's not the same therapist doing all these different techniques, and that's because therapists gravitate to what they feel most comfortable doing. Exactly. Well, you have the nail on the head. I mean, you know, you know, first of all, these studies show there's no difference among outcome among the different approaches, but... You know, it is different by therapists. Therapists account for, you know, what researchers call amount of variance. They account for about 9 to 10% of the variance of change is who the therapist is. So it matters a lot who the therapist is and what kind of relationships they form. You know, in that TDCRP, the NIMH study that I mentioned earlier, the two most effective therapists in the study, and they only used experienced psychiatrists and psychologists, the two most effective therapists were two female psychiatrists in the no-treatment condition. Hmm. They weren't doing any treatment at all, and they were still the most effective in the study. Hmm. Well, that's very interesting. <laughs> okay, well, <laughs> and this is very interesting, too. I'm talking with Dr. Barry Duncan, the author of What's Right With You. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. And stay tuned as we uh, finish up with Dr. Duncan and also talk about 
the uh, timeliness of this, as I mentioned at the beginning, in regard to the state of the world and how important it's going to be for us to uh, find some resilience and heroicism uh, in ourselves. So stay tuned. Bringing the world together. You're listening to America's Voice, voiceamerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today. So contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Go beyond success and discover a deeper meaning to life. Join host Jeffrey Gitterman and his guests, the premier thought leaders in business, politics, science, spirituality, and culture, who have reached the pinnacle of financial and professional entertainment in their fields, only to discover a profound lack of fulfillment with what our culture defines as success. So won't you tune in every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time to Jeffrey Gitterman and Beyond Success, redefining the meaning of prosperity, right here on America's Voice, voiceamerica.com. You want the truth? Face the facts. This is VoiceAmerica.com. Depend on it. Hello, this is Rory Gray, President of Greyhound Pets of America and host of Greyhounds Made Great Pets on Voice America. Join me every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific and 2 p.m. Eastern for an insightful and enjoyable talk about one of man's best friends, the Greyhound. Learn about the history of the Greyhound, discuss proper obedience and training techniques, and find out more about the Greyhound racing industry and what they are doing to help the adoption effort of the former race dog. If you own a Greyhound or just love dogs like I do, join me for Greyhounds Make Great Pets every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific right here on America's Voice, voiceamerica.com. The world leader in Internet Talk Radio. Internet Talk Radio. You're listening to America's Voice, voiceamerica.com. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have questions or comments for Dr. Carol, call toll-free at 1-888-335-5204. Now let's get back to the show. Here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. By now you've probably been figuring out what's right with you. (laughs) And we're talking today with the author of this book, uh, Dr. Barry Duncan, and Before the break, I started um, asking you about uh, how you see, and and of course, I do want to say that we've just really touched on, because it's been so interesting debating this with you, we really just touched on, 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 barely, on the meat of this book, so we'll, at the end, give people a way to get this, but um, what what do you think about in regard to um, the timeliness of this and how people are going to be needing to find more resilience in themselves because of both the uh, uh, seeming, or not just seeming, but the, more, the, the increasing difficulty of getting um, 
insurance, uh, getting the right kind of treatment and having insurance at least pay for part of it, as well as the increasing stress after 9-11. Those are both excellent points that, you know, despite, you know, all the, I mean, there are a lot of people looking for answers out there, first of all. I mean, with, with all the, the, certainly the marketing of, of on TV, the direct-to-consumer marketing the drug companies are doing now, and a lot of the, there's a lot of talk in the media about mental health issues that has raised awareness about it. But at the same time, if you look at the amount of mental health expenditures, both privately by managed care and governmentally, like programs like Medicare and Medicaid, uh, the amounts of money that are apportioned for mental health continues to dwindle every year, so it makes a lot of sense that people will start, again, looking to themselves because they may not be able to get reimbursement for actually, you know, getting um, proper mental health consultation, and that a lot of mental health consultation is being done at the family doctor level, and, you know, it's good to get consultation from somewhere, but it's, um, I would rather it come from a mental health professional, from a psychiatrist, psychologist, or a marriage and family therapist, or counselor, um, than only just a family doctor because they will tend to only um, look at it in one particular way and a way that they can fix with a prescription, whereas a mental health professional will tend to make a, a more a broader contextual view of things. So that's, that's one part. The other is that, I mean, there's more uncertainty in the world. I mean, there, there's always been a lot of uncertainty in the world, but since 9-11, it's added, you know, an exclamation point to uncertainty that, once that happened, as it's been said and very cliched, I mean, our, our lives changed forever from that day forward. So, you know, with that going on, people tend to, with that uncertainty, they, tend, they need to be able to look toward themselves and think about how they have been resilient in other circumstances that may or not exactly like what's happening now, the ways that they dealt with uncertainty and fear before in their lives. Yes. Um... I know. I I talk a lot about how there's a big amount of denial since 9-11, since we were told pretty quickly after that to just um, buckle up and um, and fly the friendly skies. And you know, there's nothing wrong. Um, And if you if you if you dare to say that you're scared, you're not American. You're not a patriot. You know, Mm -hmm. you're 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 some kind of coward who should. Uh, go into a corner, and so people have really stuffed down a lot of their fears. And I think that this idea of, you know, some of the the exercises that you've been talking about today, um, remembering oneself in in times when we had to face um, situations beginning in our childhood that were really difficult, and what we did to... uh, to survive those and overcome those, I think that's a good start to... You're not, I'm sure you're not saying that it's, it's a substitute, um, that everyone should go off, read your book, <laughs> um, help themselves, and not consult a mental health professional if you, they have problems that aren't getting better or if, um, I mean, you actually said something about if they're in a violent situation or, I forgot what the other, what was the other, you only gave like two examples of reasons why you should consult a mental health professional. Well, I, and, and not just look at the book. I mean, you know, I gave two. One, if, if the violence or its threat is a part of their life in any way, right. they should consult a mental health professional or if they're thinking of hurting, hurting yeah, themselves. Right. 
They certainly right. should. But And also, if they've tried on their own to help themselves. I mean, there's nothing wrong with consulting a mental health professional. You know, I believe in, in, in therapy. I'd be like a priest who didn't believe in God if I didn't. I mean, mm-hmm. I, you know, I see the changes that can come from therapeutic approaches to folks. So I'm not. that's not my message. My message is, though, that you don't need to believe that there's something wrong with you to make changes and that you might be able to make a lot of changes on your own if you start trying to harvest your own natural innate resources rather than thinking that, that there's something wrong with you, like that you're in, in the Wizard of Oz thinking that you're incomplete as a person in some way when actually you might have everything you need to make the changes that you want to make if you start looking for what those things are. Yes. Now, I imagine that you've gotten a good response to this book in these days of, um, I guess, you know, you've probably thought about this because of having done various interviews, but um, there seems to be a, a mistrust of like, certainly psychiatrists, if not therapists in general, as people are are feeling more frightened about their own mental stability. Absolutely. You know, it, it's really kind of interesting. There was a there was a survey that came out not too long ago that put, you know, psychiatrists is how they had mental health professionals, but I think that they kind of took a lump for all of us. But psychiatrists were just kind of above, you know, used car and insurance salesmen <laughs> and attorneys. I mean, it wasn't very, it was like you had those three right under that, and I went, wow, we really have not done a very good job of, of presenting ourselves to the community if they kind of are thinking that we're charlatans or they think that there's a, a profit motive to what we're doing. Mm-hmm. It's, we haven't uh, done a very good job of uh, presenting that that's, that's – I mean, obviously we're, we're trying to make a living, and I'm not – and I'm sure you're not either. I'm not embarrassed or ashamed of that. I get paid for what I do. But at the same time, you know, I, I really – offended to be likened uh, to an attorney or a used car salesman. We're not kind of ambulance chasers in this process. But when you have a, you know, a mental health expert on the air and someone, you know, puts a microphone in front of his or her face and then they start talking about, you know, all of the mental illness and the 50% of Americans have a mental disorder, you know, and you know, yeah. all of that, it's really not very credible. I and mean, if you look around, I mean, when I look well, around. Well, I don't know about credible, but it's, it's, I guess people don't really want to hear that. Right. But, and the other problem is, um, and this is something that I'm not very proud of, of a lot of my colleagues about, is that psychi- psychiatry for a lot of people, um, a lot of people who are becoming psychiatrists or are have become psychiatrists in recent years are are just getting involved in medication and not therapy. Exactly. And it's very hard to form a good relationship with a psychiatrist if all they're going to ask you about is um, your side effects and, and really, you know, see you for 20 to 30 minutes and then see the next person. It's like an assembly line, and that's certainly something that I do not get involved with. Um, I do not see anybody who, who – and just give them medication. If they need medication, they need therapy. And I only see people for therapy, and those who need medication, I give it to them as well. But therapy is what it's about, and um, otherwise the medication is just a Band-Aid. But you could see where there would be some hostility growing between um, patients and these psychiatrists who only see them for 20 to 30 minutes and don't really get to know who they are at all. Oh, exactly. I tell you, I wish all psychiatrists practiced the way you do. So why don't you do something about that? Why don't you get a movement afoot to uh, 
make psychiatrists do therapy again. I mean, when I was trained, psychiatrists did therapy. I mean, I, I had conversations yes. with psychiatrists about therapy all the time. Now, you know, I, it's hard for me to ever have a conversation that's, you know, it's always about medication. And, yes. of course, it's, it's the assembly line process is far more lucrative, and you're right. How could you trust or get to know anyone if they just ask you about your medication and side effects? They don't, you know, know about you as an individual, so it's hard to trust folks that way. You know, the other thing that consumers don't have much trust in us now is that they don't trust the outcome because not very many therapists or psychiatrists monitor their outcome. Um, and that's another thing I try to do in the book is get people to monitor their progress in any approach yeah. that they choose. Yeah. Now, before we uh, get swallowed up in this <laughs> outgoing music, um, tell us how to find this book. The quickest way to get to it is on my website, which is www.whatsrightwithyou.com. Um, whatsrightwithyou.com is the quickest way, but you can also find it at Amazon and in your local bookstore. Okay. And um, would that be with the apostrophe for what? No, not the website, just uh, without the apostrophe, okay. whatsrightwithyou.com. Okay. Well, that's great. Well, I must say, <laughs> I have enjoyed this. Very much. <laughs> and um, I do think that um, there is something to be gained in, in looking into this, um, as you said as well, not a substitute for therapy, but certainly I think the more resilient each of us can become in the face of this uncertainty um, as to what's happening with world events, the better the whole world will be as well as you individually. Absolutely. So thank you very much, Dr. Barry Duncan, for being a guest on my show. And again, that's whatsrightwithyou.com for a copy of his book. You've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat.